Nahum 1, 1 through 8. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into the darkness. You know, this is kind of fun. We don't, I don't know, how many of you did your devotions in the Minor Prophets this morning? Nobody. How many of you did your devotions this morning? <laughs> we, don't spend, we don't tend to spend a lot of time in the Minor Prophets for, you know, maybe good reason in some cases, but it is kind of fun to spend time there um, every now and then and, and get to know them a little bit. There is value, of course. Every bit of the Word of God has great value for us, and that includes the prophets. As you know, we're flying over the Old Testament, and uh, we're in the prophets, and uh, we, we've, you know, if you think about it along those lines, there's a lot of prophetic material in the Bible. I don't know the percentage. I tried to find it, but I didn't spend enough time looking. But there's a lot um, in, in the Scripture, cover to cover. And then a lot of that is just simply named prophets by the prophets themselves, which is where we are. We looked at Micah last time, contemporary with Isaiah and Hosea, most likely, um, Micah is short, but has a lot of wonderful things, a lot of wonderful writings to, to communicate to us. Micah prophesied to the Jews in the south, to the nation of Judah. He tells them that the wound of their northern neighbors has now infected them. That is, they're overwhelmingly idolatrous, turning from God's ways, and God is promising judgment upon them now because of their incorrect approach to life. They have not aligned themselves with God's pattern that he created for a good life. Multiple times we notice that Micah jumps from the current scene to future events, some of which are still future to us, at least as I am seeing it. He speaks of the coming ruler, one who is born in small town Bethlehem, and the king's greatness, he says, will spread worldwide as Zion is central to the earth. Well, we spent a little time on the verse 7 of chapter 7. Micah's confidence, he says, was in the Lord. I think that's a great challenge for us, no matter the fears and the frustrations, the dysfunction or the disappointment that we might face, God alone can be counted on to remain faithful. And so the confidence of the godly must be 
in God alone. This has to do with faith, trusting in God's will and God's way, even when we don't get it. It also has to do with waiting, endurance, patience, perseverance. Things may not resolve when we want them to, or even in our lifetime, but Micah has some great lessons for us there. So today, if you're if you're there already, we're going to be looking at Nahum. If you, you can find him, he's, he's small. This is when you need the page numbers from the Pew Bible. But uh, let's turn to Nahum, and before we get into it, we'll ask the Lord to bless our time together. Dear God, thank you for allowing us to be together. That alone is a huge blessing to come together to sing, to pray, to look at your word, study, to worship you, and to fellowship with one another, encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Thank you that we have this time this morning. Thank you for this prophet of Nahum. We pray that this wouldn't be um, just a, a boring overview, but that it would be truly a challenge as we see your heart, as we see more of who you are, and as we look at what you've done with Judah and Assyria, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So before we look at the, at the scripture itself, let's remember now that uh, the northern kingdom of Israel is really off the scene for the most part. Assyria, the, the national power, or I shouldn't say national, the worldwide power, has deported these ten tribes off of their land due to their sin. This is God's judgment on them, right? This was most of the previous prophets we've looked at were during the times of Israel and through their exile. The prophets we have left to look at will either be to the single kingdom of Judah in the south, during exile, when we'll see Judah be exiled at some point here before long, and then there's a few prophets that are after exile. But as for Israel, it, that's a thing of the past. By the way, as a side note, remember other things are going on in the world at this time. Japan was formed in about 660 BC, if I'm not mistaken. So we're right in that period right now as we look at the prophet Nahum. The land of Judah... It's the only one left, and Nahum shows up. His, his name means comforter, and he has a, a message from God to the nation of Judah. But you, Nahum's message is unique in that the message is not about Judah so much, but about Assyria. Sometimes you hear Nineveh, that would be the capital city of Syria, and it's metaphorical for the whole nation. So we're talking about that nation of Assyria. And these were the ones, as I just said, the ones who had just wiped out the northern ten tribes. Judah is basically under their thumb as Assyria is a constant threat. They paid taxes. They were in constant fear of Assyria. In fact, they weren't always just a threat. They had captured and exiled some Judeans, and they had destroyed parts of Judah after or they had besieged Jerusalem, the capital city, and God saved them. God sent them. Remember, he killed a bunch of them off during the night as, because Hezekiah came humbly before him and asked for help. We, 
uh, a king by the name of Esar Hayden from, from Assyria carried off Manasseh. That would have been Hezekiah's grandson. So Judah is a small, weak nation in the midst of an Assyrian-controlled world. And if you notice the map there, the green, hopefully you can see that, is Assyria's control. They're, they are the, the world power. And Nahum's message is a judgment upon Assyria. This message, really written to Judah, was welcome news. Soon Judah would be free from this economically crippling power, this foreign tyrant. By the way, if you notice the little circle around Jerusalem, the nation of Judah was probably smaller than that circle. Um, Assyria's power was widespread. Now, if you think about it, perhaps this message we're about to look at in Nahum impacted some Assyrians as well, calling them to the one true God. But once, um, very shortly after this message, the last great military king, Ashurbanipal, he died and there was no competent ruler. And then Assyria was, they were overextended and they rather quickly declined. They declined partly due to Babylon. This little city over here was a former vassal or a, a nation controlled by Assyria, but they got the upper hand and they, and they destroyed Nineveh and took over much of their territory. Now, from the divine perspective, this was God's timing. All of these events are God's timing, punishing Assyria for their unrepentant sin, sin and, and problems over the centuries. Remember Jonah? Jonah would have been about 100 to 150 years prior to Nahum. Through Jonah, God brought a message. He warned the Assyrians, remember, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Well, they repented, didn't they? And God didn't destroy them. But they've returned to their evil. In fact, maybe it was worse than Jonah's time at this point. Nahum's message comes in about 650 B.C., about 612, so not too many years later, is when Babylon completely conquered and destroyed the massive nation of Assyria. There was no coming back, by the way. They were never to rise again. Their remains were not discovered until mid-1800s, about 1850. So let's open the book and glance at what Nahum might want to share with us. Some of these things are things we can benefit from as well. In chapter 1, it doesn't give us much, about, much information about Nahum. He doesn't tell us much about himself, as a lot of the prophets are, are inclined to do, but he says he's from Elkosh. We don't really know where that is. That's somewhere, probably in the land of Judah. And Nahum sets the stage here in chapter 1 by teaching us about God. Why would God destroy well, it's based upon his character. It's based upon who he is. I think that's the communication we're seeing. And these things are not just found in, in Nahum. They're found throughout the scripture, right? The Lord is jealous and avenging, is fierce in wrath, verse 2. Verse 3, slow to anger, great in power, never leaving the guilty unpunished. He is about to destroy. In fact, the mountains quake, the hills melt, the earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Verses 5 and 6, his wrath is poured out like fire to the point even of shattering rocks. That's a powerful word picture. 
And then as Nahum describes God, he continues in verse 7, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows, God knows, those who take refuge in him. Both of these describe Yahweh, both sides. God is both wrathful toward his adversaries. He's also long-suffering and good. So I want to come back to that when we get done with our flyover and look at a little bit more about God being wrathful and slow to anger. But put that on hold for a minute. Nahum, having given, having, having given a balanced view of God, he returns to the theme of judgment in verse 8. He will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood. He will chase his enemies into darkness. That's a pretty bleak picture. Pretty, their, their, construct, their destruction was complete. And the window of mercy for Assyria is closed or nearly closed. Notice the overwhelming flood that he, he speaks to. That may be metaphorical in the sense of completely dis being destroyed or it could be literal. It's likely that the Euphrates River damaged part of the city of Nineveh when it overflowed its banks during a siege that they were completely devastated by. The description continues in the next few verses. In, in verse 12 and 13, you notice that God here addresses Judah. Now, Judah is not fully good, are they? Fully righteous. In fact, they have some significant problems. We've seen the prophets and we'll see more speak to their issues. But based upon the promise of God, the covenants that God was in with Judah, hope is visualized for them. Here the hope has to do with there being no more Assyria. That's going to be a good, a good time for them. This is a significant thorn in Judah's side. They would be gone. It speaks, it says God, it will be no more afflicting them and tearing off their shackles. Remember Assyria, they had been God's disciplining agent in the lives of his people for quite a long time, even bringing about great punishment through Assyria to his people Judah. And verse 15, God tells Judah to look to the mountains for a messenger approaching. This messenger would bring a message of peace. It would be good news for them as Assyria, as they find relief from Assyria. Chapter 2, I think we should picture Nahum atop a city wall. He takes, takes the position of a watchman atop the great wall of Nineveh, at least in your imagination. By the way, these are artistic expressions. We don't have any photos of the old city of Nineveh, but it was, a, it was some would say, an, a wonder of the ancient world. Nahum sits upon the city wall and he sees the enemy approach. We're in chapter 2. Look at that. By the way, um, as he sits on this city wall, it's a massive city wall. Nineveh was known for its strength in outlasting siege, known for their defense tactics. In, in verse 1, he urges the city to summon all its strength. Watch the road, man the fortress. The one who scatters has come against you. Now, if they'd taken that to heart, that would have been terrorizing. They, the Assyrians, were the scatterers. They had successfully scattered many peoples 
they take them off the land and, and move them out. That was their, one of their forms, one of their tactics for defeat. But now the one who scatters has come against you. Nahum pauses in verse 2 to reiterate God's intent of restoration. So far, this, this restoration theme has been there in all the prophets that we've looked at. Restoration for Judah. And in this case, in particular, because Assyria will have no influence over them. And then from verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3, and all the way into chapter 3, the last chapter of the book, Nahum sits astride the city wall somewhere, as it were, an eyewitness to the destruction of Nineveh and of the nation of Assyria. This, of course, is foretelling. It hasn't happened yet, but in the mind of God, it's already determined. As you see, as you look at verse 3 there, I've heard it said that the military for Assyria wore red. They had shields painted red. And I don't know if this is true or not in, in for sure, but in, this red would have been there in, in order to intimidate the opponent, perhaps to hide their blood when they got wounded from the enemy. But regardless of the red reference, you see in verse 3, Nahum sees warriors, chariots, weapons, but they're, they're madly running around the city, probably in fear. They rush to defend, but they're not able. In verses 6 and 7, it is decided her beauty is stripped, Nineveh is ruined, and perhaps the people, or not perhaps, they are carried away. The tale continues, the confusion, the destruction, the plundering, the greatness, and the natural beauty of Nineveh is turned to rubble. It's a desolate waste. The mighty Assyrians had for many years been the lion in the land. They were feeding on the less fortunate, the sheep around them. But now, verse 11, where is the den of lions, God says to them. Nahum asks the rhetorical question as if the action were already carried out. Verse 13, and, God, and, and the, the thought is finished saying that God, the Lord of armies, is what he's called, will devour their young lions. Here's what a Babylonian source says as it describes the city's fall. Remember, Babylon was the one who besieged them. It says, The city was seized and the great defeat the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar inflicted upon the entire population. Many prisoners of the city, beyond counting, they carried away. The city, they turned into ruined hills and heaps of debris. I don't know if they use Caterpillar to do it, but <laughs> Nahum chapter 3, as the watchman on the wall, it's a, it's, a, it's a bad picture. He continues to declare their downfall. He says, woe to the city in verse 2 and 3, the whip, the rattling wheel, the galloping horse, the bounding chariots. Charging, flashing, gleaming, many are slain, piles of de dead corpses, so many that the escapees stumble over them. Very descriptive, isn't he? But why is God judging? Why is God judging Assyria? God has just reasons. You can see in verse 4 that he, he lays some of those out. He says, because of the continual prostitution of the prostitute, the attractive mistress of sorcery who treats nations and clans like merchandise by her prostitution and sorcery. 
In God's ravishing judgment, he is exposing their long-term prostitution. That is their evil. The idea is that he will publicly humiliate them for their rebellion, their cruelty, their wickedness. And many would hear of it. In verse 7, it says many would hear of it, but there would be no one to show sympathy. No one would comfort. It's about as bad as it gets. So God has reasons for judgment. Mercy has been great, but punishment, well, you might say they had it coming. It was only a few years earlier, and this is part of how we determine the date for the writing of Nahum, that Egypt was destroyed or taken by Assyria themselves. That would have been in 663 B.C., and, and you can see in verse 8, the city that's called No Ammon or Thebes is mentioned there. It says it's situated by the Nile. God is saying, basically, what you did to Egypt only a few years ago, that's coming to you. That's about to happen to you. So here's Nahum atop the wall, and as he comes to the end of the prophecy, he speaks to the king of Nineveh himself, the king of the land, most, perhaps the most powerful person in the known world. Verse 18, all who hear of this mortal wound of the king and the nation's downfall, what will they do? They will clap their hands. They will rejoice. And that is because most of them are relieved to see Assyria go. Verse 19, for who has not experienced your constant cruelty? You remember Genesis 12, 3? It says God would curse those nations that treat Israel with contempt. That still stands, I think. Now I know this is this prophecy, Nahum here. It's, it's kind of all removed from us, isn't it? The weaponry, the location, the culture, the kingdoms, all of that's pretty removed. But if you were in Judah... At this time, and this is reality we're talking about, Assyria was, Assyria as a powerful, brutal force probably was on your mind every day. Actually, their reputation lives on even now as a very violent, cruel, barbarian in their methods of warfare and their methods of defeat. They were, um, if you resisted their great power, they crushed they employed many torturous and terrorizing methods of killing and maiming. Some were just for sport. Some were to instill fear in their subjects and their enemies. Lots, of, lots could be said about that. We won't, we, won't talk, we won't say any more about it here right now, but their brutality was real. They had a very twisted culture. But God had finally had enough. He had showed mercy. Lots of mercy. He extended warning, and now their destruction is imminent. A man by the name of Austin Henry Layard in the mid-1800s had a great part in discovering the remains of Nineveh. The, the, it, and he says this after his research and his part in the discovery. He says, We have been fortunate enough to acquire the most convincing and lasting evidence of that magnificent and power which made Nineveh the wonder of the ancient world, and her fall the theme of the prophets as the most signal instance of divine vengeance. 
Without the evidence that these monuments afford, we might almost have doubted that the great Nineveh ever existed. So completely has she become a desolation and a waste. Prophecy. God means what he says. We'll turn back to chapter 1 for just a minute today. Nahum here, as we briefly saw, is giving a picture of God. This is not a comprehensive picture, right? This is part of God, but it's, it's very revealing. It's very, it's, it is helpful for us as we learn about God. Look at the factors there. Verse 2, jealous, avenging, wrathful vengeance on adversaries. Verse 3, he is slow to anger and great in power, even to the point that the natural earth is up upheaved and trembles at his presence and he will not leave the guilty unpunished is what it says there's some other other parts that Nahum includes in the character of God but I want to ask you when you think of God some of you have known God many years maybe some of you have just found God what comes to your mind when you think of God Okay, his love. There's a lot of different things that could come to our mind when we think of God because God is diverse, right? But I, what, what, you don't have to, just quickly in your mind, what, what would you write down if you had to write a sentence or two about who God is? If you had to define him, he's your God. I think for many, and particularly in more conservative Christianity, there's a tendency to define God by his wrath, his judgment side, a negative, fearful concept of who God is. The big man on the throne waiting to bring the hammer down on me, or at least put a check mark by my name, another check mark by my name. Nahum says God is jealous, he's wrathful, and he takes vengeance on enemies. He also says God is slow to anger, great in power and good. Here is a component of God's character. God is a God of just wrath, but he is slow. Maybe that sounds weird to you, but let's talk about that for a minute. Now, in our experience around us, wrath, you might say rage, is not a positive thing, is it? My family and I have been known to watch a brief show Online, one of the guys in the show has moments where he turns into what he calls a rage monster. Well, it's all fun, you know, whatever, just kind of silly as he rages. But why does he rage? Well, it's because in, in the fun of the show, the silliness of it all, whatever, something makes him angry and he can't hold it in any longer and the wrath comes out and it's not pretty. Well, in, in reality, most of us have known someone maybe we have been or maybe we are someone like that it's almost accepted around us it's a norm in the culture in fact if you want you can get merchandise to go with it but this rage this wrath is not what we're talking about when Nahum says the wrath of God wrath is clearly a biblical part of God's character if that's true, and it is, we should carefully and rightly define wrath 
and vengeance as we learn of God. So it's not that anger that we know, that we feel, that we see. As a righteous, holy God, wrath is an absolute necessity toward sin. It is part of his character to have wrath toward sin. Without wrath, actually, God is unjust. It's not so much an emotion, God getting angry at sin and then reacting. It's a concrete part of his character. As a holy God, he must punish sin. And the vengeance spoken of here, that's related. Vengeance toward enemies. Again, I don't think we're talking about an emotion-driven revenge. We're talking about righteous retribution. Not so much emotion-driven revenge, but righteous retribution. Remember, God will always act out of holiness and will always punish Sin, you see that in the middle of verse 3, the Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. God is a just, God is a God of just wrath, but he is slow. There's a lot talking about this subject in the Bible, God punishing the guilty, we see it take place, um, righteous retribution on enemies. So then the question is, are we guilty? Are we enemies of God? I think that's a yes and a no. We are guilty. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, haven't we? But listen to Romans 5, 9 and 10. It says, How much more then, since we have now been justified by His blood, Christian, you've been justified, you've been placed in a right position before God. It says, How much more then, is that the case, will we be saved through Him from wrath? For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved through his life? We are no longer enemies. This speaks directly to our situation. As guilty sinners, God did not, he will not leave us unpunished. His wrath is directed towards sin. He is obligated to punish. The good news is, if you are in Christ, if you've chosen Jesus, your sin has been punished. Instead of you going to hell for eternity as a necessary punishment, the expression of God's wrath, Jesus took your sin to the cross and paid the debt. Jesus, in the great plan of God, took the wrath upon himself. Fancy theological word calls that propitiation. It's a very important concept. It's a necessary concept as we try to understand God. He is a God of wrath, of vengeance toward his enemies. However, we are not his enemies. We have been reconciled. The wrath has been absorbed in Jesus. God's not sitting up there squinty-eyed watching you as, as an old judge waiting to strike you or even to put a check mark by your name. You are reconciled to him. You are adopted into his family. If you are saved, if you're not saved, if you don't have Jesus this morning, that's not the case. You want to find Jesus. You want to find reconciliation. He will take your punishment. God is a God of just wrath, but he is slow. Nahum says God is slow to anger. Now, listen to Exodus 34, 6 through 7. 
This is a, a great passage. If you write it down somewhere and study it a little bit, God is, he's giving a description of himself to Moses here in Exodus. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. The prophets knew this. They probably understood it better than we do. God is slow to anger and abounding in love. Never would God need a slow down sign. Never. According to a traditional Hebrew story, this is fiction, but give it, a, give it a hear. Abraham was sitting outside his tent one evening when he saw an old man, weary from age and journey, coming toward him. Abraham rushed out, greeted him, and invited him into his tent. Then he washed the old man's feet and gave him food and drink. The old man immediately began eating without saying a prayer or any kind of blessing. So Abraham asked him, don't you worship God? The old traveler replied, I worship fire only and I revere no other God. When he heard this, Abraham became incensed. He grabbed the old man by the shoulders and threw him out of his tent into the cold night air. When the old man had departed, God called to his friend Abraham and asked where the stranger was. Abraham replied, I forced him out because he did not worship you. God answered, I have suffered him these 80 years, although he dishonors me. Could you not endure him one night? Now again, that's fiction. That's just, that's not in, in our scripture, but you get the idea. We can pass judgment in seconds, can't we? We easily denounce someone. We get angry at the state of the culture. We can feel the rage rising up even at our own children or people, family sometimes. But God is not so fast. He is slow. Because of his love and his kindness, he is, someone has said, relentlessly patient with humanity. Relentlessly patient. It takes him a long time to get heated up, but that's on purpose. It's who he is. It's, I don't think it's just a long fuse. I, it, it's who he is. He is slow to anger. Were it not for his slowness to anger and his great mercy, we would all be lost. I'm convinced. I don't think the world would still be in existence. He is purposefully, as part of his very fiber, slow to wrath. So God's wrath, God's anger on evil people, on evil nations, it's necessary and it's inevitable, but it's driven by great patience we have examples of this. I mean, think about it. If God pronounced, or God pronounced judgment on Noah's world, remember that? And he then gave them 120 years before he destroyed them with a worldwide flood. God told Abraham that the Canaanites were wicked and would be punished. But it was over 400 years before that took place. Similar patience and long-suffering we, we see with Israel and Judah. The prophets come, the prophets come. We see it with Assyria even. I wonder, have any of you felt the patience of God in your life? I have. God is a God of just wrath, but 
He is slow. By the way, I think it's incumbent upon us to apply God's way of being slow to anger, very patient, more patient than you think is possible to apply that into our own lives. James chapter 1, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And ponder that. So we've seen God here as a God of wrath, a God of vengeance. That's a necessary part of his holiness. And if you're willing to accept it, the wrath of God has been applied to Jesus for your sake. And we're seeing that our God is slow to anger. He is not desirous that any should die, that is, that any should be separated from him forever. 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but he is patient with you. He doesn't need a slow down sign. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So, this is a significant part of God's character that Nahum speaks of here. A God of wrath, a God of vengeance, appropriately. But he's slow to anger because of his great kindness. I think we can appreciate and celebrate God's wrath. We don't need to be afraid of it. And we can appreciate and celebrate God's slowness. But not as some describe slowness. He is patient with us and with the sinners around us. I just urge you to meditate on that a little bit this week. Maybe that's no new news to you, but it is good news that we continue to have in our mind. God is a God of just wrath, but he is slow. Pray with me if you would. God, thank you for this message that Nahum brings us. A little bit of it we're able to, to look at and I just ask that you would help us to understand the value of your wrath that is a necessary part of your holiness. Let us not be in a place of being afraid of that. As Christians, that's been applied to Jesus. What a wonderful, loving, amazing plan that you put in place that your just wrath could be applied and we could have life eternally with you. And thank you, God, for your slowness. Even today, in the state of things, as we look around us, we wonder why, but we're impatient, and you are patient. You want everyone to be saved. Please continue with your patient will in our lives and in our culture and our world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.